We are in Ezra chapter 3. We are going to be looking at the reestablishing of the worship. Uh, we're not going to get as far as to see the temple have much done with it. But the, the feasts are going to be reestablished. The priesthood is going to be reestablished. So we'll take a brief look at the priesthood. And we'll get into the feasts that have been fulfilled. There are two seasons of feast in Israel. There is the spring feast and there are the fall feasts. And the fall feasts are all yet unfulfilled. The spring ones are fulfilled. So we're going to take a look at these. What goes on as you are, for those that are uh, watching online, if you come up with questions as we're going through some of the feasts or any of the other things, write them down, put them up on the Facebook link. Daryl will see them and make sure that we uh, get to them. But if I don't have the answer, tonight we'll make sure we get it for you next week. That's uh beginning here at verse 1 of Ezra chapter 3. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Now the seventh month is the month Tishri, that is corresponding to our October most times. It was considered the most sacred month of the Jewish year. And when you first hear that, you may be like me and say, well, wait a minute, what about Passover? But Passover is not the most holy. The most holy time for them is are the fall feast because in the fall feast it contains the Day of Atonement. And that is the most holy day to the, uh, to the uh, nation of Israel. And so this is the month that they're going to kick off with the feasts. They were there for Passover, but they did not start the feast then. They waited until the seventh month and they've decided to start it up now. The seventh month commenced with a blowing of trumpets and a holy convocation on the first day, which was followed on the tenth day by the solemn day of atonement, and on the fifteenth day by the Feast of Tabernacles or ingathering. This is one of the three great annual feasts. There are three feasts that Israel was to gather for, and the Tabernacles was one of them. So this is the month that is chosen to rebuild. There was a risk that was involved in the restart, but the importance of the month moved them more than the risk. Now, Zerubbabel and Joshua determined that, <clears throat> that there was a risk, they would rather defer the restoration beyond the commencement of this sacred month. So they've held off for a while, but now they decided, no, regardless of the risk, we're going to go ahead and, and start the, the feast. So the people gathered around. They were in all the different cities, as we've covered before. But they gathered into Jerusalem. They, they all know that the Feast of Tabernacles is one they were to gather for. That's Exodus 23, 14, and 16. But there's something more. Of course, it's going on here. This is when they are reestablishing the feast, reestablishing the altar, reestablishing the sacrifice. And so they all wanted to be there for that. I think even if it was not a feast that required it, they all would have been. Verse 2, Then Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shalti, Shatil, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, 
Yeshua <coughs> is, is basically the word Joshua. Joshua is the Old Testament form of Jesus. So Joshua was a type of Jesus. He could be a type in there as well. He is the first, <clears throat> the first high priest here. Now Ezra does not call him a high priest. Haggai and Zechariah do. But Ezra does not give him that title. <clears throat> His father is Jazadak, or Josedek, and he was the son of Sarai, Sariah, the high priest at the destruction of Jerusalem. Now it might be interesting to note some of the history of the, of the high priests. You know that Aaron had four sons. And two of them were wiped out. The oldest, Nadab and Abihu, died because they offered strange fire to the Lord. So the high priest fell to Eleazar. And Ithamar was the younger of the, of the two. What you have here is Eleazar was the successor to Aaron. Phineas was his successor. Abishua the son of Phineas, he was the next. Bukai was next. Uzai was after that. We have a gap that went on, and none of our historians have who fills in some of that gap. And then all of a sudden, we have Eli. We all remember Eli. I'm not sure if Eli started this this um, reign that was there, or if somebody else came in before him. But Eli is the one who shows up on the scene. What is interesting on Eli is that he is a descendant of Itamar, not, not uh, Eleazar. And so the line of the priest switched from Eleazar to, to Itamar. You remember that there was a pronouncement prophecy on the house of Eli because of his disobedience. And so the priesthood didn't stay with his house for very long. We have um, Ahitab, that was the grandson of Eli, was next. Because Phineas, of course, died. He's, he was the son of Phineas. Ahijah and Ahimelech, he was the son of Ahijah. He was high priest during the reign of Saul. <clears throat> Abiathar was next, and he was high priest during the reign of David. He's still of the lineage of Eli. But he was removed as high priest, if you remember the story, when David was dying. He wanted Solomon, but Joab didn't want Solomon. Joab wanted somebody else, and he got the high priest to go along with him. And they went on to try and make this other son king instead. Solomon considered that a conspiracy, and... Abiathar was removed from being high priest. At that point, Zadok was put in his place. Y'all remember that name? Zadok. Zadok begins the line of Eleazar again. And the line of Eleazar stays all the way up until Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, who was the final high priest during the, uh, when the temple fell. Now I spent time, I figured nobody here probably really wants to know all this, but if you ever do, 
I compiled a list of who the high priests were between there and in Sariah. There were, there's a, maybe a couple that are missing. I was able to team some of them up with, with the uh, priests, like King Ahaz had Uriah, King Hezekiah had Azariah. And what's tough is some of the historians call them by different names. And then you try and find a corresponding name in the Bible. And I tried to use that name more. Um, under King Manasseh, we have a Hosea, but he was also known as Zadok II. Now, how good do you think the high priest must have been for the um, high priest of God under King Manasseh, who was one of the most idolatry uh, kings who just served idols so uh, wretchedly? And was judged. He did come back to God in the end. Hilkiah was the priest under King Josiah. And of course he would have been one of the ones instrumental in the uh, restoration of worship. So let's go on. But as you can see, even the priesthood here had a lot of corruption in it. During Jesus' day, that still was going on. We'll take a look at some more things in the priest as we see how this new line carries on in the book of Ezra. Verse 3, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. So they were afraid of the people that were around them. They were making some threats. But they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings. Now, there's been a lot of accusations about these people who come back from Babylon. Some people, historians, have looked at these folks as bringing back a mixture of Judaism and Babylonianism or some other idolatrous traits into, into this. And so they're trying to accuse it of not being a pure religion, pure Hebrew religion. They put a lot of uh, emphasis on this. They took the altar and they took the basis of the altar that was there. They also took the foundation of, of the temple that was there. They're building on what was old. They're trying to demonstrate we are hanging on to the old roots. And it does seem, from all we can tell with Ezra, that they did, even though some historians may assume some, uh, some worse things about them. So fear had come upon them. You might wonder, why are they afraid? King Cyrus had said, hey, go out there and do all this. King Cyrus said it. He is a newly, newly taken over the Babylonian Empire. Not everyone in the Babylonian Empire necessarily is submitted to Cyrus. They were used to how things were with Babylon. Now we got a new guy in town. Things are being changed. Why did you send these Jews back into this homeland to build all this? You can kind of understand some people are not on board. They're not happy that this is going on. And though the king may have given them letters and permission, uh, they didn't get their specific permission. So they don't necessarily like it. And uh, you can kind of think of it if you were in a, in a city, in a rough neighborhood, and the mayor of the city said, all right, in this area of the city, we're going to build this. But the people there don't want it. And so a group of people come in to that section, and they say, all right, we're here to build this. But the people don't want it. You can see some of the hostilities there. Yeah, but the mayor said, what the governor said, don't matter. So this is what they're facing when they come in here. Not everybody is behind the Jews building their temple, building their city, building their wall. And they were making threats about it. Now the people around them, they're not Persians. They're not people submitted to Cyrus. 
they come from different places. Second Kings, I believe it was chapter 4, says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuta, Ava, Hamath, and Severim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possessions of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So that's some foreigners that are in the land there. In Ezra 4, 9 and 10, from Raham, the commander, Shamshai, the scribe, and the rest of the companions, representatives of the Dinats, they, boy, that's a fun one there, Afar, Saf, Chites, the Tarpalites, the people of Persia, and Erech, and Babylon, and Shushan, the Dahavites, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great noble Asnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. So they got a lot of other foreigners is what he's telling you here. There's not just Jews or just the Jews that were left behind before. There's other people that have come along. Verse 3, Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, that is, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offerings and those for new, moon, new moons, and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple to the Lord had not been laid. Now, we see here that the feast was brought in. We know these are the fall feast. I gave uh, Daryl a, a picture. Are they going to be able to see that on, online? They are not. I meant to email it out when I sent out the outline to all you folks who watch online. And I neglected to do so. So I will try and remember later on to put these pictures up here for you. But these are simply pictures of the Feast of Israel and shows you more in a graphic format where they are. If we can put them up on the, on the, uh, board for us. So we have Passover, which is of course the one we're all most familiar with. That is the first of the feast. Unleavened bread comes right in the midst of, of that. It starts the day after Passover. And then first fruits comes within the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So these three all occur in the same week. Then we go over to Pentecost. There is 50 days. How Pentecost is, is compiled is there is a Sabbath within the, the first fruits. The Feast of First Fruits, I'm sorry, the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasts for seven days. Within those seven days, you're going to have one Sunday. That Sunday is considered to be first fruits. The first Sunday, the only Sunday, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the Feast of First Fruits. So you begin to count from there. That's a Sunday. You, you begin to count seven sets of weeks, which comes to 49. On the next year, I'm sorry, the, on the next day, the next day after the 49th day, that is the day of Pentecost. So it gets the name Pentecost from 50, because it's 50 days after. It also comes up with the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Pentecost are exactly the same thing, because it is seven weeks. So it is sometimes called the Feast of Weeks. That's where that one comes in. These are the spring holidays. These are all fulfilled. These are the fall holidays. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. 
None of these have been fulfilled yet. They are all prophetic. They are all dealing with things in the future. One more time for the other, the other screen. Yep, ready for the second one. All right, this just gives you the, the, uh, the look-see of it all. So we have the first month, the month of Nisan. This is their first of months. And this is where the spring feasts come. So their first month is in the spring. Every, and of course we have uh, uh, Pentecost that will come over in there. And then you have the fall ones. And they all come down over here in the area of Tishri. The day of uh, the trumpets is on the first day of the month. Now, if you don't know how the Jewish months go, the Jewish months are, they are on a lunar calendar. We are not on a lunar calendar. We operate on more of a solar calendar. But they operate on a lunar calendar. So all their months are 30 days. It doesn't change. We don't have, you know, this one has 28, this one has 31, this one has 30. They all 30 days. They operate on the lunar. The lunar cycle is 29 and a half days. And so what happens since they're operating on the lunar, the first of the month is the new moon. The full moon comes around the 14th of the month, around the middle of the month is when the full moon will come and then it begins to, to go away again. That happens every month. That's how their months go. Now, if you wonder how they make up for the uh, extra days, uh, every once in a while they just throw an extra month in. That's how they balance it out. They just go with their 12, 30-day months, and they keep losing a little bit of time, and then they have it all planned out. Oh, we need an extra month, so they throw it an extra month, and then they just throw another 30 days, and then everything is hunky-dory again. That's how their calendar works. Um, I assume it still works the same today. I, I don't know, but I know that the, back in these days, this is how they did it. So the full moon would generally come somewhere on the 14th of the month, and other things would come up on the 14th of the month as well. Now, Passover, this was the first of their, of their feast. This is a feast of salvation from sin. There's a lot of misconceptions that come up about Passover. I hear a lot of people teach things about the Passover lamb, about the Passover event, and it's like they forgot what the Bible said about it. I don't understand how they, how they do it, but uh, we're going to go over what the Bible says Passover is. Because for me, the Bible is the authority of what Passover is. Anybody who wants to get inspiration and change Passover into something else is wrong. The Bible tells me what it is. So, that's what we want to take a look at. We have to understand, too, the Passover concept. And this may be something that you, have, you don't think about all the time. It doesn't come to mind, but uh, we will go over that. Now, in the, on the Passover, we go all the way back to, the, to Egypt. We were in the land of Egypt. They were in a foreign land. In the Passover, God was not killing the firstborn. That is not how Passover went. Now, we're not going to spend the time to go over it, all that unless uh, people have questions about this. But if you go back to the book of Exodus and you look at the actual plague, there was a destroyer who was coming through. And that destroyer is the one who was going to kill the firstborn. God's angel was the one who said, you cannot go here because the blood was on the, on the doorpost. This is what they had to do. The only one in danger of death in the Passover as it went on in Egypt. There's only one person in the household who was in danger of death. The firstborn. 
This was not something that preserved everyone from death. It only, pre- this is really important to understand this because if you don't understand this concept, you'll miss what Passover does. The only one who was targeted for the death was the firstborn in the household. Firstborn male. It was a firstborn, it was a woman, you were off the hook. It's the firstborn male. That's the only one. Before this, the home was cleansed of all leaven. You had to go through, this is, these are all, all these points there. Each one is really important to understand. There's, there's something to be learned from it. So the home was cleansed from all leaven. In fact, what they would do as they developed this later on is they would spend a few days going through the house and they would clean every nook and cranny and get all the crumb. You could not have a crumb in the house because a crumb would have leaven and all leaven must go. If you cannot have a storage of things that have leaven in it. So if you have anything at home, has some yeast in it, it's not good enough. Well, I'm not going to eat that for this. No, they cannot be in the house. And so what they would do is they would gather all these products and they would bring them out into the village, into the city, wherever they were at, and they would burn them. They would burn all these different things. Uh, they didn't give them away. They burned them. They were It was gone. Leaven is being taken out. So if you are a person who made products that had leaven in it, this was not a good week for you. But the good thing was, the next week, everybody has to resupply all the stuff they burned. So, you know, you'll, you'll make up for it then. But all that had to go. And so the ritual came that what would happen was that the, the mom, the kids, daughters and sons, they would all spend all this time cleaning the house. Not dad. Dad's not involved. The dads were not involved in the cleaning out of the house. They would spend all this time cleaning up except for a small little pile that was somewhere in the house. And so dad would come home from work or wherever he was at and he would embark on finding the remaining little bit of crumbs. They They might be under the sofa, might be under a chair, Maybe under a table somewhere. Maybe in a cabinet. He had to go through the house and find it. And when he found it, he would take his little brush, little dustpan, sweep them into there, and he would declare. I don't know, this might, this might make you mad. I think if I was one of the kids, it might make me mad. He would declare, I have cleansed the house. <laughs> this is what he would do. I have cleansed the house. And then he would take it outside and they would put it in the pile and they would, they would burn it. Everything had to be burned. You can't just throw it outside. They had to, they had to burn this stuff. So the home was cleansed of all leaven before the feast began. The lamb would come into the house on the tenth day. On the tenth day, they would go and they would pick the lamb. They would either go out into their own field and they would, if they had one, or they would go over to where they were, uh, uh raising them for this purpose. And they would walk on by and they would pick out a fluffy. And you go out there and you would find a little baby lamb, you know, that you like, that's perfect. And you would take it and you would bring it home and it would stay in the house with you for four days. For four days, the kids are playing with this little lamb, feeding the little lamb. For four days, mama is taking care of the little lamb. They're taking it outside. They're walking it. 
They're doing all kinds of... Four days spending time. Can you imagine having a puppy in your house for four days and then announcing, we are going to kill the puppy? How well would that go over? And this is what they would do. For four days, that, that lamb would be in the house. They can get attached to it, but they all know in the, in the fourth day, the fourteenth day, they would bring that lamb... They did not kill it themselves. They brought it out and the entire congregation would come together and they would kill the lambs. They would take the blood of the lamb. The blood is not going in on the inside of the house. The blood goes on the outside of the house. The body of the lamb goes on the inside of the house for which they would roast it, not boil it. It was very specific. You will roast it, the lambs. You had roast lamb. So not only are we going to kill Fluffy, we're going to put it on the table and we're going to eat it. And everyone had to eat the lamb. Don't be telling me you don't like lamb. Don't want to hear that? You need to eat the lamb. Everyone had to eat the lamb. On the inside of the house, we eat the body of the lamb. On the outside of the house is the blood that was put on the doorposts so that the angel would say, these are ours. They had made a public declaration. Now the lamb would die, so the firstborn would be passed over. That's the Passover feast. The house isn't passed over. The firstborn is passed over. It's real important that you get this. The, pen, excuse me, the penalty was due to come on him for sin, but he's being spared. The lamb is taking the death penalty for him. Now, this is not a new concept in which the firstborn is passed over. This has been done before. If you remember, Ishmael was passed over for the secondborn Isaac. Esau was passed over for the secondborn Jacob. Even Cain was passed over for Abel. Each case has the firstborn as a product of the flesh to get the blessings of the flesh. I'm sorry, to get the blessings, the flesh had to be passed over for that which was of the spirit. So even when Abraham had Ishmael, no, that's a product of the flesh. I need to pass over that and we need to go over here to Isaac. Isaac is a product of the spirit. Esau was rejected because he was a product of the flesh. Jacob was received because he was a product of the Spirit. Can you see that concept? That's important for us to understand. Now the lamb was killed in front of the whole congregation on the 14th day, four days after it was picked. The blood of the lamb was applied outside the home in public view of the doorpost. And as we said, the body of the lamb was eaten by those inside the home. All those, not just the firstborn. Now, the scriptures for this, Exodus 12, 2 and 3, This month shall be your month of beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for his household. On the tenth. Jump down to verse 6. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on. Now, I'm told from people 
that have uh, Jewish roots, that they will kill it between the evenings. I am told that's what it actually is. There are, two, there are different evenings for them. They're, they don't work on things like that. And if you work that out to a time, it comes out to somewhere around 3 o'clock. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorpost, on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. So you had unleavened bread. Anybody know what unleavened bread is? I mean, it's flat. It's, uh, you can, if you ever go to the, to a Jewish store to buy this, if it's square, it's produced by a machine. If it's round, it's produced by hand. So they would make this no, no yeast in for seven days. This is what they're eating. It's, it's flat. You probably have seen pictures of it. But they would do this on the tenth day. They would pick out the, the, the lamb. There were a couple of other significant events on the tenth day of Nisan. First off, in Numbers chapter 20, Miriam dies on this day. Exactly one year later, in Joshua chapter 4, verse 19, we had the dividing of the Jordan and the children of Israel cross over on the tenth day of Nisan. Now get this, if they are crossing over on the tenth day of Nisan, where's the lamb? They would have picked it out. Someone in the family is carrying that lamb across the river. You can't risk that thing walking on their own because they break a leg. That lamb is no longer without blemish. There's one other event that happened on the 10th day of Nisan. On the 10th day of Nisan, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. On the 10th day, he came in. Now, all this points to Jesus, as we said. Before the feast, Jesus cleansed the temple. What's that sound like? Cleaning out the leaven out of the house. Jesus came in and cleansed the temple. He arrives at Jerusalem on the tenth day, and he spent the next four days in Jerusalem teaching, answering questions, and ministering. He's basically on display. They have four days to spend with him, just like they had four days with the Lamb. Now get this part of it down. This is one of the most important things to understand about the Passover. The first Adam was the one who gave in to sin. The first Adam was a creature of the flesh. The first Adam was passed over for the second Adam, Jesus. Jesus became the lamb that spared the first Adam. We are descendants of the first Adam. As his descendants, we receive the benefit of the blood of the Lamb. But in order to get that benefit, you have got to forsake the flesh of the first Adam and live according to the second. Now the judgment that was due, the first Adam was passed over to the second Adam. And that's why we walk free of judgment. Now, the lamb had to be inspected. The lamb was inspected for those four days. It already passed inspections up until then, but the lamb stayed in the house. They could see it. They had four days to see if there's any other spot, blemish. 
as we said, Jesus openly taught in the temple. I am told by one person who, who understands some of these, these Jewish customs more than I and some of the Jewish history more than I, that the lamb was actually inspected on seven different occasions. I couldn't find that written anywhere. So I just had that to go on. But Jesus was inspected on seven different occasions. The first occasion was after he was arrested, he was taken to Annas in John chapter 18, 12 through 24. And they couldn't find any consistency in the testimony against him. He was then taken to Caiaphas. Now, there was a whole lot of politics going on there. Annas was the high priest, but Caiaphas had been the one, was removed for some wrongdoing. And he was still, he put his basically his son-in-law in so he could still be acting as high priest. And so Jesus came over to Caiaphas in Matthew 26, 57 through 67. The third inspection was Pilate. Matthew 27, 11 through 26. You remember the famous uh, verse in John 19, 6? You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Herod had a shot at his inspecting him in Luke 23, 6 through 12. He couldn't find anything wrong with him. And then, this one might escape you, but Judas. In Matthew 27, 3 through 4, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He declared him innocent. On Luke 23, you'll remember this one real well, the thief on the cross. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. That's number six. Number seven is the centurion in Matthew 27 and 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Seven times he was inspected. Not to mention all the four days he was there in their presence before. But what we learned from the Passover, the blood was used for protection from the destroyer who was trying to bring death. Adam was the firstborn. Jesus came along to be the second Adam. We were born of the first Adam. As long as you stay under the first Adam, then you will receive the death that that destroyer brings. But if you will leave the first Adam and become born again and receive the redemption of the second Adam, then you, re- then you leave that, that uh, destruction and you are passed over. Amen. <laughs> well, then we come to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This begins the day after. The second feast begins on the next night after Passover, the 15th of Nisan. God told the Jews to eat only the pure unleavened bread during the week following Passover. Leaven in the, Bible, in the Bible typically symbolizes sin and evil. You'll have a number of references that you can find that. Jesus even said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So for this whole, this whole week, you stayed away from unleavened bread. The, um, the piece of bread that was the Jewish matzo 
It was used by the Jews during this week. Unleavened bread was striped just like Jesus' body in Isaiah 53. That's, I don't know if they did it for that particular reason, but it worked out that way. There's a lot of things that worked out in the Passover Seder as they, if you uh, ever see one of those things done. The Passover ceremony of breaking and burying and then resurrecting a piece of this bread represents the gospel in the midst of the modern <coughs> Jewish Passover. God performed this exactly ceremony with the burial of Jesus on the exact day of the feast. People have speculated how did Jesus die so quickly, but he died on that day and he was buried. Now, one of those things that, that comes up is uh, this is not in Scripture. But has anybody ever been through a Passover Seder by someone who knows what they're doing? I have, decades ago, I was through one. They are very interesting to do, but there's a lot of things that are done in the Passover Seder that are not in the Bible. But all of them point to Jesus. One of the things that they would do is they took three pieces of unleavened bread. And they would, uh, let, me, let me just read it for anyone to make sure I get it right. They took three sec- a three-section pouch called the matzah tosh. And will hold three whole pieces of matzah unleavened bread. At one point in the Seder, the middle matzah will be taken out, broken, wrapped in a white linen cloth, and hidden away until the children are sent to search for it in the Seder. Once found, that broken and wrapped piece called the, and I don't know how to say this word all that well, it's spelled A-F-I-K-O-M-E-N. Afikomen. Will be brought back to the leader of the Seder to be redeemed. It will then be distributed among the guests and family members around the table. So they will take the broken piece of unleavened bread that was hidden until they were sent to find it. They will take that and they will distribute. They'll break it more. And they will distribute it amongst the people at the, the this, this particular Seder. Whoever is head of that Seder will do that. And that each one of those members will partake of it. What does that sound like? The Last Supper. In which Jesus took the bread, which was unleavened. And he broke it. And he gave to each of them. He was acting this out. That one piece in the Seder, not in Scripture, but in their tradition, pointed to Jesus. That middle piece. It's one of the one of those things that just really etched in my mind when I went through the Seder and I, I saw all the things that had happened with it. That, that one, wow. How is it that people of Jewish descent can be doing this year after year Decade after decade, century after century, passing this down and doing all that, and then see the Messiah and reject him. Now, I forgot to, to bring this part of it out, but you remember on the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb was not slaughtered inside the house. It was not slaughtered privately. They brought it out and they killed the Passover lamb in the presence of the whole city. And this is how Jesus was. Now, let me come to the first fruits. I gave you the reference there. If you want to go back and take a look at it, I'm not going to, to go through all that right now. But this is held on the Sunday following unleavened bread. So whenever the unleavened bread ceremony began, 
this is this is when it would go. And uh, now you've heard me break down the the uh, uh, crucifixion week, and y'all know I do not hold to a Good Friday, even though we do have a Good Friday service. I know Jesus was not crucified on Friday. You could make a case for it on Thursday, but the better case for it is on Wednesday. That he was crucified on Wednesday. And that the, the, there was a holiday, the, the Sabbath, that would follow. And then Friday would not have been a holiday. And so the ladies would have gone out and bought the things they would have needed to make the ointments, to make the spices and all that, to uh, work on Jesus. And then s- Saturday came, that's a Sabbath. So you had a double Sabbath in there. And then Sunday came, this is the day they came to the tomb. And why they came to the tomb prepared when they just went with a with a Sabbath unprepared. That makes a lot more sense. And then you get three days and three nights. We know that he was dead three days and three nights. Not half half here, three days. And that's what the Word of God tells us. So then we come to the Sunday. So in this particular scenario, the way this would have unfolded was Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. Thursday would have been the, the, the Sabbath of the feast. Saturday would have been the Sabbath normal. And then that Sunday is the Sunday in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which automatically becomes Feast of First Fruits, which is the day that Jesus resurrected. So Jesus had to die in a year in which the Feast of Unleavened Bread had a Sunday that would have followed in the pattern I just gave you. And it did. So when when God is looking this whole thing on out, it's not hard for him, of course, to plan the, all this sort of stuff. Of course, God doesn't... I don't believe that God lives time linearly the way we do. So it's uh, even easier for him than we can even imagine. Now, we have... As a nation, we have come to call this Easter. We here, we call it Resurrection Sunday because I don't particularly like calling a holiday, high holiday after some pagan god. But uh, some people will do that. So on Resurrection Sunday, that is the first Sunday of the month. That is the first, the Feast of First Fruits. And this is what you would do is, this is, we're kicking off the harvest. And so you would bring in the first that you would bring in on the harvest. Basically, I believe there's more to come. So I will bring the first and I will leave it here because I know that there is more to come. So Jesus is the first fruits. He is the first one resurrected from the dead. And we will follow after him. He was the first fruits. He was the first fruit that would come from that harvest. And we are going to be coming in that harvest after that as well. Now, from that Sunday, it will be 50 days until the day of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. Jesus stayed with his disciples for 40 days. And then he told them to tarry and to wait. Now, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of uh, Pentecost, in the Hebrew, they called it the Feast of, and I will try and get this right, Shavuot. Not Shabbat. The, the pronunciation is the three-syllable Shavuot. 
That's what they would call this. And that's a, that's a Jewish way they would refer to it. Generally, it was called to it by us, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. There was uh, two other names, too, that they would sometimes throw on it. There are three scriptures that outline the, the observance, and you can look them up if you wish to. But God gave uh, very precise directions on how to count down these days and what would take place on the 50 days, that this is the first fruits. So the... Um, I'm sorry, the getting my nasal here mixed up. So the, the feast of, of weeks that would come, the the Pentecost that would that would come when they would come together on this. It was a feast of harvest. It was a feast of they had some days in which they were already harvesting, but there would be the beginning. I believe this marked the beginning of the wheat harvest for this particular uh, particular time. And they would come together. As we said, this is one of three divinely appointed feasts decreed by the Lord that they were to make the pilgrimage over into the temple. Now this feast became something different for the Jews after the time of Christ. It did not stay what it had been. It did not stay the, the Feast of Pentecost, the uh, Feast of Harvest, so to speak. It became the giving of Torah. There was a particular event that happened. It was called Bar Kachba. It was a revolt that ended in 135 A.D. There were 50 fortresses and 985 villages that lay in ruins. The death toll in the Jewish life from the war topped 580,000. The Sanhedrin convened in A.D. 140 in the village of Usha, near the modern city of Haifa. They decided to divert the focus of Shavuot, or Feast of, of uh, Weeks. They decided to, to divert the observance away from the agriculture and instead associate with the historical event to keep the holiday alive. And they used this particular event. Now, this is also around the time the Jews were becoming more of an urban people, and the Feast of Weeks was more of an agricultural holiday, or more of an agricultural observance, seeing as it was very much about the harvest. Jewish tradition states that God offered the Torah to all the nations of the world, but only one nation would accept its stringent demands, and that was Israel. So along with the written Torah, it is taught that God also gave the oral Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. The rabbis suggested that Shavuot was the day that the Torah, the Mosaic Law, was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. This was not done arbitrarily. Although the Bible never associated Shavuot with Sinai, this theme was chosen because the giving of the law had also occurred in the third month, Exodus 19. So the idea of giving of the law and the birthday of Judaism quickly caught on. Jewish literature began to pick this up. And it became the dominant uh, way of thinking of this particular holiday. So, Shavuot became known as the time of the giving of our law. I went all, spent all that time on this because I want you to see what has happened to this Feast of Weeks. We know as a church what Pentecost represents. Pentecost is the pouring out 
of the Holy Spirit, for which Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is poured out. That Pentecost was a day that would be fulfilled by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But there are people who reject the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that the thing that they sub, sub, uh, use instead, the thing that they substitute for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is the giving of the law. And the battle between the law and the Spirit continues. Even on this particular holiday. Now, we have not quite seen any of the other fulfillments. Number five has not been fulfilled. It just marks the beginning of uh, the fall the fall harvest. But what you have here, this holiday has now become the beginning of the church and the beginning of Judaism. All on the same holiday. The things that go on with the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, this was the Feast of Harvest, and they would come in after the beginning of the, the uh, harvest that would go on, the spring harvest. They would come in, and this would become a Sabbath. So imagine this, you've got a harvest going on, this is the first day of it, and now you've got a Sabbath. How happy are you? But they, they continued to honor this, at least they, they did for a while, that this would, this would go on. And then they would go back to work to harvest until, until such time as the next feast would come. The next feast, anybody want to take a gander as to what it is? Feast of Trumpets. And what would happen was on the first of that month, the trumpet would sound and the work of the harvest would end. And everyone would put down their harvest instruments and gather together. Wow. Is that fun? <laughs> well, we'll have to save that one for next time. And it won't take too long really to go through the rest of the, of the feast. But I didn't want to be time crunched to get into the, these first ones so that we have an understanding of what they are. But the things of God start out well, but man has a way of changing them for their own purposes. Passover has come to mean protection from a lot of things, missing the point of its origins, and the blood has been widely applied, while the body on the inside of the house has lessened in importance. But if you go back to the feast, the blood is on the outside, and the body... Is on the inside. When you think of the blood of Jesus Christ being poured out on Calvary, who collected the blood? When Jesus shows up in heaven, he has the blood. Who collected it? There's nobody on earth who was collecting it. But I'll bet you there were some angelic beings that were going around collecting it. And of course, they got powers that we don't even have. They could go off to some of the blood that's over there on the road and just call it right into the bowl. But when Jesus goes up to heaven, he's got his blood. Doesn't matter how much of it leaked out in other places. Doesn't matter what got mingled where. It was collected. And he presented that blood to the altar. 
That's where that, that's where that blood is. It's on the altar that is up in heaven. The one that Moses saw that made a pattern for, for the one that was down here on the earth. But even the Passover concept has slipped through many people's understanding. We forgot about the Passover. That we are no longer of the first Adam. The second Adam took that penalty so that we could say, stay alive. But we need to get out of the flesh of the first Adam become part of the spirit of the second. Of course, that's a lot of the writings of Paul. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. How many times is he writing about the nature of the flesh and the nature of the spirit? And we cannot fulfill the spirit in the nature of the flesh. You cannot be of the first Adam and fulfill the nature and call of the second Unleavened bread. Why live without sin when we can refine, redefine what sin is? We can just redefine what the word means. We can just redefine how the word of God applies to us. What parts of it apply? What parts are outdated? Why? Well, there's no reason to be going through a house, scouring it to get rid of all the crumbs. There's no reason for all this burning, taking stuff out in the back there and, and lighting it on fire. No. We've gotten a lot more complacent about sin and we will tolerate sin. But the feast of unleavened bread is to let us know. Go after it. Rid it from the house. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. Once a week they were to do this to keep their their minds understanding. They knew this meant sin, not not leaven. So the rest of the time they they could do that. There's no need to purge the house now. We don't need to strip our, cons- our uh, things that we are consuming. We invite sin in through movies, TVs, books, magazines, all sorts of things. We just bring all kinds of sin into the house. God is the God of grace, and He loves us even with our sins, so why all the effort to live right or study to understand His will? Mm-mm. That feast, though it has been fulfilled, has been forgotten. First fruits, I acknowledge God and with my hats and my t-shirts, even tweets and Facebook posts. So why do I need to bring him the first fruits of my harvest? Why do I need to acknowledge him in these things? But the giving of the first fruits is to trust and believe the promise that there is more that is to follow. Pentecost, I don't like what God seems to imply with this one. So many in the church take out the work of the Holy Spirit. And those with Jewish roots, they want to make it into something that they're more comfortable with. Let's make it the giving of the law. This is the feast that we are living in. It marks the beginning of the harvest with the help of the Holy Spirit. And will continue until the next feast, the Feast of Trumpets. When the work of the harvest stops, we are in the Feast of Pentecost. We are laborers in the field. And every day, we ought to be thinking about harvesting until the trumpet blows and we are called home. Father, we thank you for your pictures that you give us in these feasts. There are things that we are to learn from them and not forget. I thank you for the reminder we have of them in your word. I give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, any comments or questions or anything I didn't quite answer right? I think I got all your... I only had two outplanks. Did I get them?
I didn't get him? Boy, I'll tell you what, that's, that's not so good. Only two. You wonder how in the world I could miss that. I have got so much stuff in here. Leaven puffs up, which is what pride does. The root of so much sin and sinful attitudes. This face is to eradicate this form, this from our life. We need to get rid of pride. We need to get rid of the things that puff up. We need to get rid of sin. We need to target it like they did. And not take it easy. Just ignore it. Sharon says, I love this teaching. It's eye-opening. I would love to hear about the Jewish feast from a Messianic Jew. Oh, yeah, you'll get a lot more than I can give you. <laughs> yeah, and if you ever have an opportunity, we keep thinking about one day doing this, uh, just having uh, somebody come through who does the Passover Seder and just do the whole thing here so that you can see it. So maybe we will work towards uh, finding somebody who can who can accomplish that. I cannot. I I. I could study it and, you know, give you the regurgitated form of it like that, but you need to get somebody who does this, and uh, especially a Messianic Jew who sees Jesus in it because they that's who I saw it through. And, uh, boy, is that ever eye-opening and fun. So maybe we'll try and make that a, a target for this year. Very well explained. I knew almost none of that, so thank ah. you very much. Good. Well, I'm glad we spent some time on it. What's that? The feasts are incredible, and the, the three that come are all future. They are unfulfilled. And just as these four give you details of what happened before, and if you would have studied them, you would have known what was coming in the, in the ministry of Jesus, same thing, we'll know what is coming. But I, I don't know how anyone gets past the Feast of Trumpets. Yeah. That is... That is just shocking. How can the world, can you say there is no rapture when he had them for thousands of years doing all this sort of thing? Oh, there's one other thing too I wanted to, to throw out to you. Um, the, the lamb was with the family for four days. Jesus was in Jerusalem for four days. The time period between Adam, the first Adam, and the second Adam is 4,000 years. I don't know if, you, if that time frame works out at all, but uh, you can also, maybe we'll try and work that in for the, for the next one too, for the, uh, what that time frame might mean for our next, our next deal.